there's so many things that the Holy Spirit does in this dispensation of grace that, um, I mean, when you look back in the Old Testament, the, uh, the amount of things that the Holy Spirit was involved in and the President's uh, salvation of the Old Testament saints is nearly not what you see in the New Testament. And so we see some of that on page 22, and I think that's where we left off, right? So the Holy Spirit plays a significant role in the believer's present tense salvation. Of course, he fills the believer. And so today is that the word for plerao is, means that the Holy Spirit fills up what's lacking. And so he produces the fruit necessary in the life of the believer in order that God's life can be on display. And so the filling of the Spirit produces the fruit from the Spirit in the life of the believer. And so this is not complicated. And so this has been, um, it's been twisted in uh, a lot of churches. So a lot of things have been changed to make it look like that the filling of the Spirit is things that it's not. So let's just start off and say that the Holy Spirit is not manifested today in you dancing it is not manifested in necessarily you lifting up so-called holy hands. It's not manifested in the speaking of tongues. It's not manifested in whether you wear makeup or not. I mean, these are all things that a lot of people um, really believe that, that that signifies the Holy Spirit. And I know a lot of the Pentecostals when we grew up, they put a lot of emphasis on the outward manifestation. Now, not to say that if you're filled by the Holy Spirit that... Certain things you will do as far as dress is concerned, there will be modesty in dress. I'm amazed in the church today, some of the way that people dress. And so you see in the outside world, a lot of lasciviousness and a lot of that has really come in into the church. And so you um, you would think that you'd be led by the spirit when you're led by the spirit, that there'll be some modesty in how you do that. Really, as you're led by the spirit, hopefully no one has to exhort you. You will judge yourself, right? And that's the thing. And people say, well, don't judge me. Well, judge yourself. If you're led by the Spirit, you'll do that, right? And, and that makes a big difference. And so let's look at, for example, because we've got a short period of time, look at uh, um, Ephesians 5.18. It's one of the best places to see how the Holy Spirit is filling the believer today. And so as the Holy Spirit fills the believer, then the life of Christ can be seen on display in the life of the believer. And he just keeps, he fills up what the believer needs in those areas as the believer needs it. And so notice in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, um, again, it's an admonition. So you could translate it, stop being drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled by the Spirit. And so this is an imperative and so your imperatives are not, remember, commandments, you make a statement and then there's a consequence to not fulfilling it, right? And so when God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree, the day you eat from that tree, you shall surely die. There's a consequence. So here, in an imperative, God's saying to you, you really need to do this. But do you know he doesn't give a consequence for it? And so some people will say, well, all of these imperatives are just have the same weight of a commandment, but they don't. And so in, a, in most of your commandments that are given with negative consequences is do this or this will be the consequence. He's just telling the believer today, you really need to do this. And he's not there controlling you to do it. It's an interesting thing. Because... Um, 
You know, a lot of the times I think that we want, we want someone along the way telling us, this is what you need to do. This is how you do it. Do it right now. Now's the time to do it. And God's not going to do that. He really isn't. And so here's the imperative. You be filled by the Spirit. And notice he gives you some, instant, uh, some instances of what the being filled by the Spirit uh, looks like. And it's not all-inclusive, but you can see that there is a certain attitude that the believer has. And so notice you have the participles coming off of this word for, for filled um, in 19 down through 21. Speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks, submitting. So, so those are not things you can make somebody do. You really can't. And that's, that's where I think that the line has been blurred in the church between law and the believer being filled by the Spirit. When you're filled by the Spirit, nobody has to tell you what to do. Well, you get instructions from the pulpit, obviously, about what God wants. But nobody's going to have to tell you to do those things. The Holy Spirit's going to lead you. And that's why I like what Louis Spurry Chaffer says here. That grace makes all service to God voluntary. And so we have little dictators who want to make people do things. I understand it when I was young and I was, we used to, the oldest would be in charge in our household. And I couldn't wait till my turn. And I was a massive dictator. <laughs> and so I would make my siblings do this and that to the point that when my mother got home one time, she says, we're home now. Your reign has ended. <laughs> so you can just imagine what people do in the church, right? You get a little power over people or presumed power, and they want to enforce this on people. But that's not what God wants. And you can, that, as you're filled by the Spirit, that makes the big difference. And notice the Spirit. Uh, so look at some of these other things. And I think it actually goes all the way down to Ephesians 6. And so you see it in the marriage relationships, that wives. And notice this word for submit. It's, a, it's in the middle voice, which is very important. A wife will submit for her own benefit. So there's the thing in America, and it's always been, I mean, it's been that way for a while, that husbands telling their wives, you need to submit to me, right? And, right? You've probably seen or heard that. And that's probably why she never did. And really, as she's filled by the Spirit, she does it for her benefit, to receive the benefit of being under that husband who is the spiritual leader of the household, and God working through that man to do the things that he's going to do through that family. And so submit for yourselves. Uh, wives submit to your husbands. Husbands um, are the head of the, the wife. Um, and the husband will love his wife. Interesting, two things that jump out at you there in, in Ephesians 5. And I think you have to put Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 together to get a real good picture of a marriage relationship that is... Um, filled in which two people are filled by the Holy Spirit. I think those are two important passages in Scripture. So, but here you see in Ephesians 5 that when somebody is filled by the Spirit, a husband will love their wives. He will put his, what's important to him on the back burner for the benefit of his wife. And then wives will, in verse 33, 
reverence their husbands. Now it's translated there in <clears throat> 33, reverence is actually the word phobos, form of the word phobos, and that word is a, it's a reverential fear. Uh, yeah, respect or not wanting to displease. Hopefully it's not a fear of harm. <laughs> I wouldn't think that, but if she's filled by the spirit, that will be manifested in her life. See what happens, and, I, and we tell people when we do premarital counseling, marriage is not 50-50. That's what the world system says, and that's a lie. It is one of the worst lies that's ever been perpetuated. Marriage is 100% zero, right? So it's predicated upon you being filled by the Spirit, and you're going to love this person, and it's what they're doing is not predicated on what they do, Right? Well, was it, was it predicated on what you did for the Lord to do what he did to you? Was he waiting on you? That is the biggest lie that has been perpetuated. And so the Holy Spirit aids. The, and so you, oh, let me finish this point. You, you, so you see this all the way down through six. Now you see it in the relationship of the kids to their parents. And so kids will honor their parents, give full weight to their parents. Um, fathers won't irritate their kids uh, to wrath, but he will provide them spiritual instruction. I mean, so for believers, I mean, we ought to really be have exam- exemplary families. If we have marriages in which we're married to someone that's a believer and they're filled by the Spirit, what's the problem? It ought to be exemplary. We have, every, like I keep saying, we have everything we need. We're not lacking anything. So the Holy Spirit aids the believer in understanding the Word of God. He teaches the believer. First Corinthians two and um, ten through thirteen. So Paul was talking to the Corinthians, as you know, and there was some issue about um, the wisdom of the world and how the Corinthians were giving in to the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of the age. And he did talk about that there was a wisdom that uh, he was preaching for those who were maturing. And so you understand that there's a lot. There are parts of Scripture that a carnal person is not going to be able to understand. And if you're maturing, there's certain Scripture that's written just to the maturing believer. And so notice what it says here in verse um, 9. But as it is written, I has not seen and hear, uh, ear, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them and really that are loving him. Because not every believer is loving God. And we are told in 1 John how you show your love for God. Did anybody remember? Is it that I say, I love you, God. I love you. I love you, Jesus. That's what you hear often, right? But you show your love for God by loving each other. And so as we love each other, I don't need to say anything to God, really. That's how I show my love for God. And so notice, he goes on and he says, um, for God, God has revealed him unto us by his spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? 
Even so, the things of God knoweth no man. And so, um, in verse 12, now we have not received the spirit from the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might know the things um, that are really graciously given to us from God. And so you, here you see this idea that the only way that we can know those things, just even have intuitive knowledge of it, is through um, the spirit. Verse 13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which, uh, and by, by which the Holy Spirit teaches. And now you have an issue here is uh, comparing spiritual things with spiritual Spiritual things with spiritual words, making a connection between these spiritual things and spiritual words. And it's something that in which the Holy Spirit is the, is the teacher. He's the one that teaches. The human instrument is only um, just the instrument. And so if you're learning something, it's not from the person. It's because the Holy Spirit is the one that is teaching you. The person is just speaking the words, and hopefully those words are consistent uh, with what the Holy, what what this, the Word of God says, and then the Holy Spirit is the one that is doing the illumination, and so He causes men to see things the way that they really are, and so you can see that distinction there. And today, that um, people are often to la la land, and they're not really seeing life the way that it really is. And you know, when you look at Scripture, the Holy Spirit can show you and to teach you what Scripture actually says, what really is true. Uh, the Holy Spirit aids the believer, um, causes the believer to maintain consistency with, with uh, God's will for his life. Um, he intercedes for the believer according, uh, in accordance with the will of God when the believer is incapa- incapable of knowing what to ask for. And so notice in Romans eight twenty seven. I think the word that is used here is the word weaknesses. And that, that's used uh, both physical and mental weaknesses. And so sometimes you're in situations where you are up against it and you just are, don't know what to, to ask for. Right. And so you can see that the Holy Spirit comes along and he intercedes for you uh, in that situation. And so notice verse 26. Likewise, the spirit also um, helps in our infirmities with infirmities. There is weaknesses. Now, it could be physical, it could be uh, mental. Uh, and so it's used both ways in the New Testament, right? Um, for we know not what we ought to pray. And I think that word pray there is actually is the word um, uh, as to how we ought to worship as is necessary. And so the word ought is actually as is necessary. But the Spirit himself... I always translate that itself. The Spirit himself makes intercession for us which groanings which, which cannot be uttered. And so on the one hand, you have the believer who is in a bad place, and he doesn't know how to communicate to the Father in the way that he should. And the Holy Spirit is able to come in and say, okay, Father, this is what needs to happen in this situation. And, you know, I've often wondered by things that happen, and I say, oh, I didn't even get a chance to pray for that. <laughs> well, I think that there is things in which the Holy Spirit does intercede for our behalf. Um, and, um, and God certainly hears that communication. Um, the, Holy, the Holy Spirit leads the believer. Um, oh, excuse me. He leads the believer. The word lead in the Galatians passage is the pass, uh, present passive of ago, 
which means to lead or to guide. Um, and so he's able to guide the believer uh, in this dispensation. Notice in, um, let's see, we want to go to uh, Galatians 5.22. Is that right? Uh, no, 522. 4 6. 4 6. We could go back to um, Romans 8. Back to Romans 8? Yeah, that's not it. Go back to Romans 8 14. And so notice uh, in verse 13, he says, for if you live, after, uh, go back a little bit, uh, verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are not debtors. We are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh or according to a standard of measurement of the flesh. And so here's the standard of the flesh. And it's trying to dictate to you how to live. We, we are under no obligation to live according to that standard. And notice he goes on to say, for if you live after the flesh, um, you're about to die, or really, you're fixing to die. And so it's looking at the standard of measurement of somebody who is conducting their life that way. And so God's not going to allow the believer to just conduct his life according to the flesh. At some point in time, as that believer, and somebody says, well, you know, you know I've, I've done this and that. Well, there's an opportunity to break that that. Uh, Sin as I confess it, but as I just continue to say, I'm going to just conduct my life on the continuum after the sin nature, that's not going to happen. It was interesting as a lot of these legalists say, well, you can't teach people to live by grace because if they live by grace, they're going to do whatever they want to. Anyone that says that obviously doesn't understand scripture. And they haven't read this passage. And they don't understand that God is capable enough to get his people to where they need to be. Well, we see over in 1 Corinthians 11 where it says, judge yourself and you will not be judged. God's very capable of getting his people to where he wants them to be. And so you have people who will not teach grace because, oh, if I taught that, then people are going to do what they want to do. Who are you? Who made you the God of these people? Just teach the truth. It's not my responsibility to govern your life. It's my responsibility to teach the word. It's the Holy Spirit's job to govern your life. And so you see it here. If you live after the flesh or according to the standard of measurement of the flesh, you're fixing to die. Use old Texas term. You're fixing to die. But if you live through the spirit, you and, um, and do mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh. And you see over in Romans 6 how to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. It really, it's a, the, where I go there, they're the mature sons of God. Yeah. I think 
Oh, thanks, Don. Appreciate that. So there's another use of that word ago over in 518. Yeah, that's it. Thank you, Don. Uh, Galatians 518. We're off by a few verses. That's SNL, you know. I'm making a pretty good argument for it, don't I? Verse 18. And so, um, but really, since you be led by the Spirit, you are not under law. And so, as you're led by the Spirit, I don't, well, yeah, you have all of these verses that say that, but, you know, there's, there's a problem with English sometimes. <laughs> and so, the, the, the ideal that the Holy Spirit is leading you, and it really supersedes law because the Holy Spirit's going to produce in you things that the law could never produce. And it's hard to get people to see that. They don't understand. I was talking to someone about this the other day, and it, it was just right over their head. They cannot understand that the Holy Spirit can produce things that the law could never produce in your life. It actually goes past anything that the law could have ever produced. And so that's, that's a mystery. So anyway, the Holy Spirit provides the sword, which is able to aid the believer to de- de- deflect the fiery darts of Satan. And so here you see the putting on of the armor in Ephesians chapter 6. So now in verse uh, 10, it's hard to overcome Satan, and you can see it in verse 10, if you're not spiritual, if you're not living in your position and being empowered by grace. And so there's an empowerment you have to have to live by grace in order to be able to overcome Satan. So you can see that what Paul tells Timothy in in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that there's an empowerment that you need. And you see it here again in, in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord or really be empowered in the Lord and in the power of his might, then put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the methods of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you might be able to stand within the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore with your loins girt about with truth." And so we see over in First Peter 1 what loins are. Loins are is the, the thoughts going through your mind. It's actually the word dianoia. Seeing things that, as they really are in that part of the armor there. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we were reading down to um, verse 17, I think it was. Yeah. And take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit are the sword um, belonging to the spirit, which is the word of God. So the, the word of God here is not just talking about the whole Bible, right? It's, he uses a word here, rhema. So if, you, if Satan is attacking you and you said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that really means nothing to him. But if he's attacking you toward doubting and you, you trust God, a promise that God has made from his word, and you apply that. Now that matters. And you can see that with the Lord Jesus in Luke 4. Every time Satan brought up a point, he brought up a scripture that refuted what he said. And so it's not just grabbing any scripture from the Bible. It has to be a scripture pertaining to the temptation that he's bringing. And that word, um, therefore the word of God, or the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is the word rhema. It's not just a whole of scripture it's a certain part of scripture. 
that deals with the situation in which Satan is tempting you. He comes to the believer in his uh, infirmities, which we saw in Romans. Uh, the Holy Spirit confirms the believer, believer's relationship to the Father. And so, um, well, you can see that in several places. Look at 1 John 3.24. And so the Holy Spirit has given us understanding. Uh, notice in verse um, 23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and, uh, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his, his commandment dwells in him, or really abides or remains in him, or feels, feels at ease in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us, uh, really feels at ease in us by the spirit which he has given us. And, and so there's a, inter- interesting, there's a perfect use of that word um, for ditto me, which means that I mean, he's given you that the Holy Spirit and that continues on. It's not, he's not going to ever leave you. And so, um, and so there's, there's a confirmation. And also you can see that in Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit confirms that in, in the life of the believer. Uh, the Holy Spirit transforms the believer into the image of Christ. Now, we saw this recently in Second uh, Corinthians 3.18. And so the believer is in a perpetual state of being transformed from one, cl- one quality of glory to another in Second Corinthians 3.18. And you wonder, with, with other believers and with some believers, is this the case? I mean, what about a believer who is constantly carnal? Well, I would assume that they're not in the same state they were when they first believed. They may have gotten to a stage, but are they constantly allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work in them that he really wants to do? I mean, you wonder. Probably not. I wouldn't think. But there is the potentiality. Notice we're going to get our glorified bodies. But now we're being transformed into that into that image. And there's a perpetual transformation. One of the ways that you can explain that as we read the verse, it's kind of like going back to your pictures and you see pictures of your grade school days, your baby pictures, your grade school pictures, your high school pictures, your pictures in your 50s, on and on. <laughs> so there's a transformation taking place, right? It's not glorious. <laughs> <laughs> It's not glorious, but there is a glorious transformation in which the believer, as the believer is able to yield to the Holy Spirit, where he's transforming the believer into the image of Christ. And you're able to reflect out God's quality of life. More and more. You know, the only thing stopping that is is me. And so notice in um, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, well, he talks about the, the difference between the law and then grace. He talks about Israel in 14, but their minds were blinded up for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their uh, heart. Nevertheless, when it talking about Israel shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. So they're in blindness now, and really important to understand, Israel is blind as a bat. And so the church is the people of God. Israel is going to be 
continued after the church departs. Verse 17, now the Lord is that spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, are beholding as in a glass, or really are mirroring the glory of the Lord, and are changed, are really transformed. And that transformation, remember, you're showing something outwardly that you are inwardly. A butterfly is always a butterfly, but it's not initially seen that way. There's a transformation process that takes place. Every believer has the life of the Son indwelling in them. But not every believer is showing that out. Every single believer has the life of the Son indwelling in them. But not every believer is showing that life out. For various reasons, they're hindering the Holy Spirit's work in their life, you know, and any number of reasons as to why that's not, not happening. But we're being transformed from, from one quality of glory into another quality of glory. And who's bringing that, that uh, even as by or from, showing that the Spirit of the Lord is the source of that transformation. The Spirit from the Lord is the source for that transformation. The Holy Spirit brings about communion among believers. Sharing in common with the Holy Spirit is proof that one is a believer. The Holy Spirit aids believers in keeping the unity of the body of Christ. Uh, notice that in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. So here you have uh, in verse 1, he says, therefore the, prison, I, therefore, the prison of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherein when you were called with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another, um, and I would say by means of love. And that idea of, of forbearing is to um, notice all of these things. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, you cannot in your own strength um, get along with other believers if it wasn't for the, you being spiritual. Because, I mean, just look at this one point. The believers, we all... We like different things. And there are things that you like that other people don't like, right? And, you know, to be able to forbear in those situations, you're not going to do that out of your own strength. You're not. And so, I mean, you can see it with the world, right? Forbearing one another, and again, the idea of one another the same kind, endeavoring to keep the unity and I would say uh, consisting of the spirit or belonging to the spirit in a bond of peace, uh, by, by the bond of peace. And so there's a unity that when the believers, we're all um, spiritual, there's a unity, there's a fellowship that we have in the body of Christ that's special. And you can't make it up in your own mind to do it. It's going to only come as I'm in the right relationship with the Holy Spirit, and he produces that. I mean, I've, you could try to gut it out with your own will, and you can do it for a while, but somebody's going to keep poking you, and it's going to break. The dike's going to break. It's just you can't do it. And so the Holy Spirit builds up the body of Christ. Uh, we've seen that throughout the course of Scripture. Now notice on page 23... 
the Holy Spirit immerses the believer in the body of Christ. So when we were saved, we were baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and now we have a position in Christ. And we also get a possession. In, we have get uh, possessions in Christ. So we're seen as being placed in Christ. And then there are things that we get as a result of being in Christ. And so some of those, which we've gone over in church, uh, include that we're a part of the new creation. We're given a spiritual gift. We're placed as a priest. Courtney talked about that yesterday. We're placed as sons positionally. We're forgiven all sins. We're accepted in the beloved. We're made near to God. We're seated in the heavenlies from God's reckoning. And so that's a hard thing for people to reconcile and wrap their minds around. How could I be here on earth and seated in the heaven, heavens? Well, it's kind of like when you have your credit card in your pocket, right? Your debit card. But presumably, your money is in the bank. You have two different places, right? Your money's in the bank, but your debit card is right there in your pocket, and it gives you access to your money. In a similar way, you are seen as being seated together with Christ. From God's reckoning, you are there. Just as sure as you're seated in this seat. And the way that you know it for fact is if you die, you've got a reservation there. And you're going to find out for sure. Um, and so it's hard for believers to wrap their minds around that. And so as you do it, it really makes a difference in how you live this life. We're counted to have died together with Christ in his death, burial and, and death and, um, and buried with him together and resurrected together with him as, a subs- as, as our substitute. And seen as the fact that there is no condemnation because of the work that the son um, accomplished on our behalf. Other ministries of the Holy Spirit include that he has a teaching ministry in which he teaches the believer. He seals the believer. And that is one that we want to look at um, in Ephesians 1, 6. Well, look at 430. It's in both places. Ephesians 430. And notice he says, again, you have these things, these admonitions he's um, giving to believers about what not to do. And, uh, I mean, you wouldn't tell anybody to do this if they didn't have the capability of, of doing it. Wherefore, verse 25, putting away lying, speak every man the truth with his neighbor, for we're members one of another. Be angry and sin not. So the word for angry, anger there is the word orge, is the outward wrath. But sin not. And so the, the anger can actually lead to sin. So I get angry. That's not the problem. But if uh, I got angry with, with Carrie and I pushed him. <laughs> okay. Well. <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe not Carrie. Let me pick on somebody else. <laughs> Let me pick on somebody my own size. <laughs> But, you know, so you have anger and then you have the, the, the result of that. And so the idea of let not the sun go down in your wrath or let not something come alongside of that anger and cause you to actually sin. Um, and so uh, we're reading down through 30. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his own hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needs. 
let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And really, again, an admonition here to stop grieving the Holy Spirit. And so the idea that we can grieve the Holy Spirit by not uh, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our life, having different sin in our life, and we're totally indifferent to it. And so this idea of grieving and uh, the Holy Spirit, wherein you were sealed uh, to the day of uh, complete redemption, and that which for Spargus has the idea that something is sealed, there's no way that the Holy Spirit's going to ever leave you. So we see that that's different, right, in this dispensation than what we saw in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon them, then he could leave. And a good example of that that everybody knows is Samson, right? And the Holy Spirit came upon him, he had strength. When he left, he didn't. Today, the Holy Spirit's not going to leave anyone. It authenticates the fact that you are a believer, that you're, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Um, his, now, I want to get down to his, so he has the intercessoring ministry, which we saw, the indwelling ministry in which the Holy Spirit is indwelling every single believer. Every single believer has the Holy Spirit possession. It's kind of hard for you. You can see some believers, and it's hard for you to believe that some of these people actually have the three persons of the God that indwell in them, but they do. And this is probably, I would surmise, what leads to chastening at some point. You have the Holy Spirit, you have the Father and the Son all indwelling every single believer. And so it's, it's just impossible, I think, to continue to do certain things, right? Because God's not going to let that continue. But then you have the, uh, his restraining ministry. And this is really interesting if you turn over to Second uh, Thessalonians 2. So here's a mystery that Paul reveals that the Holy Spirit is doing something that nobody knew until he revealed this. <clears throat> That the Holy Spirit is restraining. Now notice, don't say that he's restraining evil. Or if he was restraining evil, and this is what a lot of people have said in the past, if he were restraining evil, look around you, it doesn't look like he, did he fall asleep? (laughs) He's not restraining evil. He's restraining a particular person. And that's what he's talking about here. So notice he says here in verse 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and notice in verse, um, well, let's pick it up in verse 2. Let no man deceive you by any means. So the Thessalonians had been told that the day of uh, the Lord had happened, and that presumably they had been left behind. And so Paul writes them this epistle, and he tells them, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there be a falling away first, or really the departure. Now, I think he's making reference to the rapture. Some people say it's a apostasy. Apostasy has been going on in the church since its inception. It's not talking about apostasy. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that as he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and now you know what withholds, or really, you could say, um, restrains, or you could say he's holding him back. And we've talked about this before. If you've ever been to a rodeo, you see the bull 
behind the gate and he's just bucking ready to go and they're holding him back and as soon as they remove that gate if you've ever been to a rodeo you see that bull just shoots out of there like a rocket right and that's kind of the ideal here that the holy spirit is restraining this man from being bought onto the scenes satan is trying to bring this man and advance this man onto the scene and the holy spirit is restraining him stopping him from bringing this man onto the scene you can see it sometime on the football field when you see the referee going in between plays and they're getting ready to start to play again and he's holding the quarterback back and say, oh, no, no, you can't come up yet. You can't come up yet. And then he moves his hand and play starts again. And that's the idea that the Holy Spirit is restraining this man uh, from coming onto the scene. He says, you know what holds or withholds him that he might be revealed in his time for the mystery of really, I would say, lawlessness does already work. Only he who restrains, that word let it, I would translate it, restrains. The one restraining will restrain until he be taken out of the way. So what you didn't know was this mystery that Paul revealed is that the Holy Spirit is restraining this guy. And there's this guy that is available that Satan would use to bring this guy onto the scene. It has to have somebody who is that guy at every point, right? Because he doesn't know when God's going to be going to give him the okay. So this guy has to be alive at every point because Satan doesn't know when he's going to be given the opportunity to bring him under the scene. And the Holy Spirit's restraining him from doing that. And it's not until the Holy Spirit's taken out of the way. And once the Holy Spirit's taken out of the way, then the unveiling will occur. Yeah. He departs. Everybody? Oh, he well, departs. he's not leaving without us, Rick, if that's oh, what you're asking. <laughs> yes. Well, the Holy Spirit's going to depart as well. He's not going to be resident on the earth. So right now you have the Holy Spirit is resident on the earth. So you have indwelling and you have residency. So the Holy Spirit and each one of the members have the, the capacity to be able to indwell you and also be resident in a totally different location. So the Holy Spirit is resident on the earth right now, while the Father and the Son is, are resident in the third heaven. So at the time that the restraining ends, the Holy Spirit's going to depart from the earth, and there's not going to be any member of the Godhead available on the earth the during the tribulation period. That's why I say that when the tribulation period comes, that these are going to be seen as the good old days. The Holy Spirit is producing fruit in the life of the believer in this dispensation. And I want to look at this because, and I wanted to give you this chart here, and I didn't bring my, my um, overhead um, PowerPoint, but I really think that when you look at these different parts of the fruit, it's really important that you see that there are certain parts of the fruit that are meant to stabilize the believer, which is joy, peace, faith. Again, I want to continue, and it sounds like a broken record. I want to continue to emphasize the fact that the believer has it all. We have everything that we need. And I know that with a lot of believers, we, we kind of think, oh, we're lacking something. You are lacking nothing. We have everything we need to be successful in this life and accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. You're lacking nothing. 
So now you have parts of the fruit, meekness, and self-control that is more focus-directed. It keeps you from just being aimless in situations. And then you have parts of the fruit that are others-directed, love, kindness, long-suffering. This is, so sometimes I think that when people come to scripture, they think that this was just kind of haphazardly thrown together and God just kind of just woke up and said, hey, let me just throw this out here. I don't know what I'm doing. I hope this works. <laughs> but he's accounted for everything. Everything. And, and really, if it's not, if it's not, I mean, it all starts with the believer in our relationship to the Holy Spirit. A lot of believers don't take that serious. So notice these four parts of the fruit that are directed at others. So you have love, which is a desire for and delight in the well-being of the one loved, even if it costs you something. And it's others centered. And so it's not an emotion in and of itself. It's you're giving the person that you're directing love toward the thing that they need. Now, it can result in an in, in emotion. But it's not an emotion. Then you have goodness, which is that quality in which one does as much as ever he can and proves his moral quality by promoting the well-being of him with whom he has to do. And so you're looking at providing for the happiness of someone else. Do you see that around in the unsaved world? They're not concerned about anybody else. But when we're filled by the Spirit, this manifestation of goodness is there. So then you have two parts of the fruit uh, that aids the believer in relating to others. You have kindness. Um, I like Dr. Schaefer's definition here. It's a sweetness of temperament, putting others at ease. Have you ever been around people that are so on edge, you just don't know what to say to them? It's like you're walking on eggshells because you know that they might explode. And so this is the opposite of that. The believer, there's a kindness in which the believer has a temperament in which he can put others at ease. And then you have, you have a page that's off. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah. Okay, 25. Then you have long-suffering, which is the quality of um, self-restraint in the face of provocation, which does not hastily retaliate or promote punishment. So long-suffering is that, it's a, really it's the word for a long-burning. So you have the word thumas, which is there's a burning. Sometimes people will upset you, and that upsetness, you can feel that burning on the inside as they approach you or you're around them. But there's a long-burning with that person. It doesn't explode, Right? And so there's a long holding out of the mind with people that are difficult to deal with. You know, um, and you're not going to be one that says, well, that's just the way that I am. I'm just a, I'm just, I'm, I'm a short-tempered person. Well, only if you're carnal. <laughs> only if you're carnal. And that's what people say. And notice he says, and then you have faith which is the promise of God, is a part of the fruit that gives the, be the believer a stable foundation. And so you see, faith is the substance of things hoped for. There's an expectation 
And in that expectation, it's based upon a promise that God has given. So you and I don't get to make up what the, prom- what the faith is that we direct at. God gives you a promise, and you're directing an expectation at that promise. We don't just make it up and say, well, I think I have faith that I'm going to be an NBA player. <laughs> right. Don says every promise in the book is his. But that's what a lot of people believe in. And they take the Old Testament promises and they apply those. God said he'll give you the desires of your heart. Well, keep praying that promise. And I, I really think a lot of people are disappointed because of the fact that they're misapplying promises that God has not made to believers today. And so you see joy. Joy is the stabilizing factor in the life of, the, of a spiritual believer in the face of dire consequences. And so it's enjoying circumstances, whatever they may be, um, this a mental will, willingness to accept and appreciate any circumstance without resentment or frustration in these circumstances. Um, another definition is that it's a response of the mind to, um, to, pleasure, to any pleasurable event or state. It is both exemplified in life and character and set forth in the teachings of Jesus. There are many imitators that are in spite of the profound elements of grief and tragedy in his life. His habitual demeanor was gladsome, joyous, joyous, certainly not gloomy or ascetic. And so this is supernatural. I mean, you've seen I told you about a woman one time in our church. She her daughter was visiting, came down for a class reunion. And she was at the class reunion and somebody fired a shot, just one shot. And that shot found her. And she was just visiting in town. And it was an interesting thing watching her mother. I really didn't, I mean, she grieved, but I really did not remember seeing that woman just fall apart. I mean, she had the same demeanor that she always had. I mean, I, I just, as a kid, I just, that really captured my mind. And so the ideal that circumstances can happen, but I can appreciate the circumstances without being resent, without resenting them or being bitter about them. Then you have peace, and peace is a stabilizer in the heart and the mind of the believer. It's a Mind that is unruffled or lacking any timidity, a state of untroubled or undisturbed well-being, a deliverance and freedom from all distress that are experienced as a result of sin. And so I would just say an unruffledness of mind. I like that definition, really, because, I mean, your mind, when you're anxious, the mind has the ability to go in a lot of different directions. And you keep thinking, what about this? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this and this and this? And really, you just kind of just, what they call them today, I think, panic attacks. Where people just bog down. Where the peace of God has the ability to cause the believer to experience a state that is undisturbed in the midst of bad situations. And so you know that that's supernatural because it's, you, you couldn't do, I mean, it, it seems abnormal. You, you wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. And then you have meekness. Is, uh, meekness is, uh, so you have long-suffering, which is uh, dealing with people. And then you have meekness is a self, and self-control are two parts of the fruit that uh, 
can keep the believer grounded and prevent prevent him from being swayed by the surrounding chaos that is in society. So meekness is um, is an objectivity of mind that keeps you focused on accomplishing a particular goal. Let me show you one uh, scripture that deals with that in Galatians chapter six is where it's a good illustration of it. So you have a person. It presupposes that when you're spiritual, you have an ability to see what's happening with other believers. So if you're spiritual, you can actually diagnose what's going on. So now you see a guy who's in a fault. He hasn't sinned, but he's thinking about sinning. Maybe they've even told you they're going to do something. And so he says, that's who he's talking to here. Verse 1. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, which is a trespass, you which are spiritual, restore such a one. That word restore is to adjust them. The idea, it's a, a chiropractic term of putting something back into place, like a compound fracture. You restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou be tempted. And so there's meekness is an objectivity of mind. If you've ever talked to someone who is out of control and probably getting ready to sin, they always want to make excuses. But you don't understand. This is why I'm going to do this. Or this is why. Or this. And so it takes some objectivity of mind to stay focused on what the point is. And when you're spiritual, you can. Um, and so that's why he says, in a spirit of meekness. Then you have also self-control, which is... Um, it's control over one's bodily appetites. I mean, so uh, being able to control one's bodily appetites is a huge thing, and uh, not every believer is able to do that.